Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 124 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Yellow. And my husband Dylan is the sound recordist. Lonely, hello. (laughs) Dylan's lonely because this is the first time we've all been in different rooms to record. Usually, Uh. at least Dylan and I are together, but... We're all in different rooms and different sides of the country um, yeah. because COVID, et cetera. How is everyone? <laughs> I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Bailey? <laughs> well, as you can perhaps tell, uh, recently I did spend uh, 6.5 days in a hotel room alone. And Yikes. I have perhaps lost any social abilities since then. Um, and that's fine and normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Basically, you know, Pedro's are dying to know what happened was I have been in Maine since Andrew's wedding, hanging out with my mom and our, and our daughter, having some girl time. Dylan mm-hmm. flew out to join us for Maggie's birthday on the 4th. Most patriotic birthday ever, of course. Yep. Good job, Maggie. A few days in, um, I started to feel a little sick. Thought that's weird. Took a COVID test. It was negative. But as the day went on and the Dayquil wore off, it was like, I don't know. I feel really sick. Took another mm. test. Positive. Oh, no. So I ran to the hotel because Maggie hasn't been vaccinated yet. As of this podcast, she will be vaccinated, but her vaccine's on Monday. So I was nervous mm-hmm. about that. I was like, oh, no. So I had to isolate. But miraculously, Dylan and Maggie and my mom were never positive. But that's how I lost my social skills. Oh, man. I feel like it's a safe bet that at least like 30% of people listening to this right now have had a similar experience in the last you know, couple months. It seems like it's everywhere. And this is our yeah. second episode where somebody has put COVID on it. Yeah. Pedro's who want to know, what episode would it be that uh, when I recorded that one where I was like, oh, I'm feeling kind of sick before the recording? <laughs> the, the one where you talked into the microphone backwards? <laughs> uh, no, it was before that. That was that was actually not brain-addled COVID, I don't think. <laughs> Anyway, there was a, there was an episode, Pedro, probably three or four episodes ago, where right before I was like, guys, I'm really not feeling well. Let's just get this podcast recorded. And then next day, I was just laid out. It was it was very, very bad. My wife got it too. And yeah, stay sharp, Pedro. It's out there. But at least you got some reading done, right, Bells? Yeah. How did, how did your reading go recently? Well, I finished the book that we're talking about today. Um, yeah. And then I did read one other book that was like 200 pages, but... You know, Pedro's no. That's not a lot of reading to have gotten done in six and a half days. <laughs> well, you, you finished the novelization of F Boy Island, right? Uh, the, yeah, definitely. It was a book and not a television series. F Boy Island, um, really highbrow. I didn't appreciate that, and I did watch Midnight Mass, which I enjoyed. Which mm. kind of leads into my book. You know, no spoilers, yeah. but there are vampires. <laughs> Wait, there's vampires in your book? <laughs> but yeah, I'm also dying to know Andrew. How are you doing? Yeah. I'm doing well. Since we've had a long time in between recordings, uh, I have gotten married and gone on a what? honeymoon and returned to work and had the 4th of July. So a lot has gone on. Um, <laughs> but my honeymoon was wonderful. Jillian and I had a wonderful time in Italy doing something that I think Pedro's will appreciate. At least the first half of our trip, we did not what we usually do on vacation. And we, uh, you know, found some places to just kind of chill and relax. And we uh, actually got some reading done. <gasps> Nice. That's awesome. Sounds very relaxing. I started the book that I am currently reading for the podcast, but I haven't finished that yet. Um, But I did read all of Sadie, a favorite from Bailey's from way early in the podcast. And I read the second Shadow and Bone book, um, which is called Siege and Storm. Bardugo. There you go. (laughs) Andrew, I definitely have a vision of you sitting 
like on a sun-drenched Italian beach, like the talented Mr. Ripley style in like some nice stylish shorts with like a cool drink by your side. Yeah, no, that is actively what I did. Nice. <laughs> and I didn't even hit anyone with an oar. I was going to mm. say, were there oars involved? No. Spoilers for the talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> oh, and we were all together at the wedding. That That's was true. cool. It was exciting because people had listened to our podcast, you know, who are friends and family, but they'd never met Toby. And they were yeah, like, quite surreal. They kept being like, is Toby going to be here? I'm like, just wait till you meet him. He's He doesn't look the way you think you might he might look. Yeah, I rolled in. I had like two eye patches, one over each eye. <laughs> it was great. It was the weirdest part is that you surfboarded in, which I don't even really understand how you did. You have to. There was well, a lake. There, I worked it out. There was a lake. Yeah. Um, and Andrew and Jillian had a really beautiful wedding. I just have to say yeah, there was a moment. Was amazing. There was a literal rainbow. I mean, mm-hmm. can't beat it. So, guys. How many stars do you give Andrew's wedding, and do you keep it on the shelf? <laughs> Five stars would keep on a shelf. I give it 4.5, but we're using Goodreads, so I'm going to give it a five. <laughs> cold, <laughs> really cold. So, Bailey, um, I happen to know that uh, in the space between our, this and our last recording, it may have been your birthday. I'm wondering if you acquired any sh-sh-sh-shame Sh-sh-sh-shame. Yes. Yes, I did, Toby. Ah. First of all, I just want to say the irony of it being my birthday. And just so, you know, Pedro's can know, my birthday is July 1st, very close to July 4th. And on that birthday, I was like, Dylan, mom, all I want is a day to myself where nobody (laughs) needs me. And I don't have to talk to anyone. Um, and I enjoyed that lovely day reading at my local library. And the next day I had COVID and had to be <laughs> away from <laughs> everyone for six, six days. More days. Be careful what you wish for. Mm. Yes, it was my birthday. I actually didn't get that many books, guys. You can't you can't be mad. Okay. Because you did just dip under 125. So technically, for the first time in the podcast history, history we've made progress. Only two have it usurped by what? Uh-huh. Uh, five books. Going to add five. Okay. The first one Dylan gave me, it's Lapvona by Otessa Moshveg. Um, we like Otessa. This one has a creepy sheep on the cover, lamb. That's about yeah. all I know about it. And there's a sticker on the cover too, Bailey. Oh yeah, it was signed. Thank you, Dylan. Who signed oh, it? Nice. Dylan? Dylan signed it? Thank you, friend of the <laughs> podcast, Otessa Moshveg, for donating that. Did Otessa Moshveg write, I'm an effing genius, and then sign her <laughs> name and great? <laughs> Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Five stars, Otessa. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Don't even joke. Then my friend Kate, who is a listener of the podcast, Pedro. Thanks, Kate. Uh, she got me the book Seven Days in June by Tia Williams, which is supposedly a very good romance. And then speaking of romance, Jillian, Andrew's new wife... <laughs> got me a gift certificate to The Ripped Bodice, which if if you know, Ooh, you know, yeah. which is a exclusively romance bookstore in um, Culver City, Los Angeles. So I bought some books online. They haven't arrived yet, but I'm going to say them now as shame. The books are The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood, Delilah Green Doesn't Care by Ashley Herring Blake, and Book Lovers by Emily Henry. I've been seeing these a lot on Pejo's reading shelves, so... Let me know if which one I should start with if you've read those. Should we, you know, talk about some books? Let's do it. That's what I have penciled into my schedule right now. Talk about <laughs> some books, but I wrote it like some 41. Okay. <laughs> oh, and I wrote 41. Talk about some 41 books. Okay, let's go. Oh man, I'm I'm quitting this podcast and starting that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, did you read a Sum 41 book this week? Uh, <laughs> I did. I got in too deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I read um, the classic pop punk <laughs> fantasy novel Titus Crown by Mervyn Peake. Should we just all do it now? Ugh. 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 
Yes. Um, so I'm going to give you right away a little log line. In Titus Grown, the first of Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast series, an odd cast of characters are locked within the endless rituals of the brooding, gigantic Gormenghast castle until the birth, at last, of a male heir to the Grown line seems to provide the chance for some to break free of the endless drudgery of their imprisonment. So you're saying things are going pretty badly, then all of a sudden Titus strolls in like his name was El Nino? Oh. <laughs> Because it's, uh, it's a Sum 41 joke. I'm glad it was all worth it. Yeah. Oh. Wow. That, it was, that reference was so good that it took my brain like eight seconds <laughs> to catch up to it. <laughs> Stolen to my party like my name's Titus Grown. Hey, it works. Mm-hmm. So, Gormenghast Castle is really what this story is about. It's truly the fifth character of the series. Really, though, the world of this book is entirely the castle itself. It's funny that this book is called a fantasy book when in reality it has almost no fantasy elements besides the castle being so huge that it's barely like it can't be real. It's, you know, unbelievably large, it's brooding, it's dark, it's very Edgar Allan Poe like. There are these endless tunnels that wind through it and all these abandoned rooms and it's barely lived in. There's nobody who lives in it besides the members of the grown family and their servants. Mm, interesting. So real quick, I'll run through, because a lot of this book is basically about the characters, it doesn't have too much of a plot, I'll just run you through some of it. There is the Lord Sepulcrave, who's the Earl of Grown. Um, he is a person... <laughs> I feel no, like I that's that's my job title, the Earl of Grown. <laughs> Earl of Grown. You don't realize it until you say it. So he's the one who's most dominated by his lineage and the castle. His whole life, like minute to minute, is scheduled by all these rituals that have been established by past groans by his ancestors. So, you know, a hundred years ago, this other guy set a ritual where on the first day of spring, you have to travel to this room and greet the spring by ringing a bell. But because there's so many of these people in the past, every single day he has this guy by his side telling him what to do all day long. Um, He is clinically depressed, which is not surprising. Sounds like um, that time when we were all doing Animal Crossing. We were all depressed and having to do tasks. (laughs) I mean, isn't that just life in general, though? Yeah, well, now you're getting it. Um, it is for the Earl of Grown. <laughs> <laughs> there is the Countess Grown, and she is the matriarch of this family. She is very distant, kind of cruel, and she's really not interested in her own family at all. Um, she gives birth to Titus and kind of says, hey, give him back to me when he's like five or six um, so I can teach him about animals. What she really cares about are her animals, which is she has a gigantic herd of white cats that travels through the castle. She has like giant flocks of birds that are always flying in and out of her windows. And that's her. This sounds like Bailey's ancestors. I was going to say, maybe I want to be Countess Grown. That sounds I knew, better. I knew. I was, I, was, I was trying to write the description in a way that wouldn't make Bailey say she wanted to be Countess Grown. But <laughs> a couple other ones. There's Fuchsia, the lonely princess who lives uh, wrapped up in a fantasy world. There's Prune Squalor, the family doctor, who is both really repulsive and eventually one of the most likable characters in the book. There's Cora and Clarice Grown. They're um, Lord Sepulcrave's twin sisters, and their dialogue is very kind of Lewis Carroll where they talk in like circular riddles and it's supposed to be very funny. And then of course there's Steerpike who is the ruthlessly ambitious completely amoral kitchen boy who's de- 
determined to rise to the ranks of power within the castle. Don't think I didn't hear that's supposed to be, Toby. We're talking uh, yeah. about the ladies well, being funny. <laughs> most of the plot seems at the beginning of the book like it's going to be about Titus, um, but he's a baby for the whole book. It's not a spoiler to say. <laughs> it all takes place during his first year of life. So he does basically nothing. And most of the novel's plot, quote unquote, um, has to do with Steerpike, the kitchen boy, and uh, his kind of machinations. I, I do keep picturing Andrew as Steerpipe's the kitchen boy. I'm sorry. Oh, wow. That's such, for well, people who know how foul and nasty Steerpike is, that's such a brutal insult. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. That's, that's very harsh. Wait till you hear who played him in an adaptation on BBC, and maybe you'll change your mind. Oh. Uh-oh. But not yet. So I'm going to jump right into my elves. Biggest elf is the reason I think that this book is so famous. It's the setting. It's Gormenghast Castle. Peak is a real master of language, and he's at his best when he's describing things and creating atmosphere. Um, I know that he was quite a successful artist in real life, a painter and a and an illustrator, and. There's a lot of this book that feels like he's kind of describing imaginary paintings to you. So he'll conjure <laughs> up these long, beautiful images that are really striking and eerie and strange. And Gormenghast Castle is basically one gigantic, creepy painting. There's a section of the book that's probably my favorite where Steerpike gets trapped on the roof of the castle and he can't get down. And he's just looking over the castle for any way to climb down. But all it is is miles and miles of these steep roofs. And he can kind of see into different courtyards and see into windows and all these kind of strange, creepy visions. There's a beautiful section about a mysterious pool of water on top of the castle that has what looks like a white horse swimming in it. You never find out what that is. And it's so cool. It's so atmospheric. So that's a big elf for me. Are we going to find out that Piranesi and this book take place in the same universe? <gasps> Piranesi! Wow, Uh-oh. I didn't make that, I didn't make that <laughs> link, but I could see it. My other elf um, is language, um, as I kind of alluded to in the last elf. Um, he really can verge on poetry quite a lot of the time. He has no shame about indulging his love of language, and it can be very, very beautiful. He's also quite a good poet, and there's a couple of poems in here, notably a kind of nursery rhyme that Fuchsia reads about a creepy knife that's chasing a birthday cake. Um, (laughs) And if you know, you know, it's a great It's like one of my favorite things in the book. My last elf is the characters. I think it's the other big tentpole of this book. People often mention loving the characters. They are, you know, a cast of weirdos. They're very, very strange. Each of them is so strange as to be, you know, beyond believable. They're not very realistic characters. They're not supposed to be. They're, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, Lewis Carroll, those types of super big, super strange characters who are all interacting with each other and they certainly are interesting mm-hmm. those are my elves. okay all right yeah i ha- i have a guess of what your orc is <laughs> <laughs> well we'll see one of my orcs we'll go into orcs right now one of my orcs is the language some of the language is so beautiful that it'll make you kind of put the book down and be like wow and some of it is like it wouldn't make it past i feel like a like a entry-level creative writing course. Like a teacher would be like, Mervyn, sit down, please. This is absurd. And sometimes it just kind of spills over into the realm of purple prose or absurdity. My biggest orc, and the reason that this book took a lot of hits from me, is the plot or lack of it. I mentioned before that I... I mentioned before that I have DNF'd this book, and I probably would have DNF'd it again if I didn't have to finish it for this podcast. It is absolutely glacial. The first hundred pages or so are basically, you know, character by character introductions. 
with nothing happening and a lot of kind of mention of how dreary everything is and how nothing happens here. And he's basically like slapping you in the face, being like, "Don't expect anything to happen. This is a world where nothing happens." Um, <laughs> and it, the the book sort of starts to pick up with Steer Pike, and you can see that he's got ambitions. And the parts of the book where Mervin kind of lets him act on those ambitions are actually pretty exciting and interesting. There's a scene with a fire that's really good, but those kind of stop and start so suddenly and are bordered by long periods of introspection for the other characters that really you have to you have to commit to finish this book. Because of our recording schedule, I think I had like seven and a half weeks to finish this book, and it's not that long. It took me seven and a half weeks. Like it really, <laughs> I had to force myself to get through this book. Toby, are you saying that it's all filler, no killer? Oh, damn, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's good, Dylan. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, so those are my orcs. Um, and I should mention that a, a lot of the reasons, some of the reasons I've mentioned that I didn't like the book are some of the reasons some people claim it is a masterpiece. There is a pretty small but pretty vocal contingent of people that say this is an absolutely fantastic book. They say it's better than Lord of the Rings. All this kind of stuff. It, there's a lot of hype. And I, I want to be gentle. I want to be careful what I say here. But I did find a lot of people that are claiming this is the best book ever, there's kind of a similar thread that's winding or a feeling that's going through all of their praise. And that thread is a kind of hipster literary elitism. Like, it's a hard book to read. It's, it gives you nothing in terms of plot. It's very complicated in its language. And there's kind of a, a temptation when you're finished with it to be like, oh, it was so great because it sounds cool. It sounds cool to have read this somewhat obscure book to claim that it's better than Lord of the Rings. I don't know. I, I, I'm sure there are people out there who genuinely love this book, but there are a couple of reviews that I read that kind of were like, well, you probably couldn't handle it. Like you couldn't handle how slow it is. You couldn't handle how strange the language is. And I was like, I don't know, maybe it's just not super great. <laughs> I feel that so hard, Toby. I think that mm -hmm. that's exactly on the money. <laughs> Yeah. No one will be surprised if you're in the book community for any amount of time to find that there are people who are very braggy about liking literary books or books that are difficult to get through. And I think those people probably love Gorman Gast. <laughs> and then I want to address really quickly, there is a kind of strange contingent out there that is saying this should have been famous instead of Lord of the Rings, that this is the core thing that started the fantasy genre and Lord of the Rings kind of stole their glory. And that is completely insane. Lord of the Rings, it clearly laid the groundwork. I mean, it has elves, it has orcs, as we use in this podcast, but it has so many tropes of the fantasy genre. It's almost silly. You can see how the whole fantasy genre grew out of Lord of the Rings. While Gormenghast, the only really fantastical thing, at least in this book, is the strange castle. Everything else is more or less realistic. Um, so to claim that it's a Lord of the Rings killer or better than Lord of the Rings in terms of generating fantasy, I think is really silly. Why have Sauron, this like giant evil eye, when you can have a scheming kitchen boy? <laughs> That's true. That's true. So yeah, uh, you can tell I, I wrestled with this book. I felt tempted to claim that it was better than it was because it would make me seem smart. But I, I feel very complex things about this book. I think probably I would rate it 2.5. But I'm impressed that this came out in whatever, 1948, 46, like even before the Lord of the Rings. So I'm going to have to give it 
some street cred. I'm going to give it three stars. Oh, Ooh, okay. cred, cred, cred. Three groans from Toby. Trace Andrew, do, do you have any facts? Mervin's running up that hill to get to the peak. Um, <laughs> nice, nice, topical. Just trying yep, try to keep it topical for the kids out there who listen. Uh-huh. Um, so, Mervin Lawrence Peak was born on July 9th, 1911. Eventually, his education took him to the Royal Academy um, of Arts, where he studied in oil painting specifically and received good press. He began writing a little bit, mostly poetry at this point, but he was definitely sort of being talked up as a, as a, as a big artist. After his studies, uh, he, sort of, he lived and painted in London and spent some time um, on the Channel Island of Sark, which is part of Guernsey. Cows, cows. Cows, everywhere. Um, and that would be an important place in his life he'd go back and forth to there a lot spoiler alert the unfinished fourth book in the gormangast series maybe takes place a little bit on sark but no one's really sure and he received more good press for his artwork at this time and also for costume design he was sort of like a jack of all trades he was sort of in with the literary set too he was friends with dylan thomas and graham green it was also around this time that his first written work was published he wrote a children's pirate romance called Captain Slaughterboard drops anchor. Well, that sounds amazing. Yeah, which which he also illustrated. In fact, he would actually um, provide a lot of illustrations for his for his work, including the famous covers of some of his, of the books are are all Mervyn Peak originals. But Captain mm-hmm. Slaughterboard drops anchor was his first hit, technically, because it was published in a magazine. Uh oh, adding it to the list. <laughs> yeah, get on the list, everybody. <laughs> As you might expect, based on when he was born and that he was back in England. Peak was involved in World War II. During World War II, he applied to be a war artist, like to travel and sketch things for newspaper or to like document um, damage during the Blitz. He kept getting wow. rejected for that, which is, I feel pretty harsh. It might have also been, it's like, that's not a job. Like I can imagine like a war photographer, him running around in battles with acrylics. <laughs> well, you're going to get egg on your face real soon. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so they didn't. He didn't get his position that he wanted. You know, running around with his acrylics, according to Dylan. But he was conscripted into the army. During this time, he began writing Titus Groan, and he was actually eventually recalled from the army because he suffered a nervous breakdown. And they found a new place for him as a war illustrator. Dylan. Oh. So there is a position. For this. So basically, he Off kept getting podcast, rejected, Dylan. and then he had a mental breakdown. They're like, actually, maybe artists where you should stick to. Mm. So he um, he created like propaganda images. Uh, he like would go to different factories and do paintings of like the war workers to like stir up support. And then on a more serious note, after the war, he was actually a civilian at this point. But after the war, he was one of the first British civilians to enter a concentration camp and do, did sketches of what he saw there. So wow. yes, Dylan, it's a real job. Um, and this is when Titus Groan came out in 1946. It was followed relatively quickly in 1950 by, Gore, by the sequel Gast, though it seems like maybe switched those titles. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, around 1956, when he was still quite young, Peak's health began to decline very rapidly, and it like affected all his work. And he was showing signs of early onset dementia, was treated with... They tried a bunch of different things, including electroconvulsive therapy, but he steadily just declined and lost the ability to draw and write and he kept suffering more nervous breakdowns and by 1968 he was in a care home run by his brother and uh and passed away then but stopped producing work about 10 years earlier after his death his work gained new esteem and much of it has been re-edited and republished the gorman gas works are clearly the most 
the ones that have received the greatest attention. Um, though his illustration work, he he did a lot of versions of like he has a version of Alice in Wonderland that that he did the drawings for, versions of like Treasure Island and things like that that he did illustrations for, like both visually and literarily. He's like become popular. Not that he was unsuccessful at his time, he just wasn't like a star. But the Gormenghast books have been turned into radio plays, operas, and a miniseries. Sting, oh, yeah. the singer, briefly owned the yeah. rights and intended to make concept albums, but was contented oh. instead to voice Steerpike in a radio play version in 1992. <gasps> so Sting Whoa. was our performer of, uh, of the Kitchen Boy. Stingpike. <laughs> and that's Mervyn Peak. Very Excellent. cool. Peak form. Nice, nice. Very well researched, Andrew. Ooh, great Thank facts. you. I had to do it well because he had a name like Mervyn. He deserved every bit of <laughs> research that I got. Yeah, if Andrew thinks your name is lame... Uh, you're you're out of luck guys yeah what do you say every little thing he does is magic mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> you could have started with sting so we could have been using sting puns this whole time instead of some 41 puns nope some 41 puns are better <laughs> roxanne roxanne titus groan <laughs> that is titus groan by mervyn peak three stars three stars groan, groan, groan. bailey i do declare I think we're ready for our next book selection. Oh, no. Lord yes. of mercy. Should we do our New Orleans accents again, even no, though this no, takes place in Charleston? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have a book. I do have contributions to this club where we talk about books. I read Grady Hendrix's The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Slay, stick, stick, slay, stick. slay. Slay all day. Rosé all day, then slay all day at this book club. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. When they make that movie, they have to have a rosé all day, slay all day, you know, shirt for people to buy. Definitely. All right. So this book, we've talked about Grady Hendrix before. He is one of my favorite authors writing today, especially authors writing horror. This is probably his most popular book, most well-known, but the one mm-hmm. that I read last out of all of his books, including I read like a nonfiction book about Pulp Fiction. So I read that first, finally read this one. Um, and the reason why I read it last was because I heard a review on the podcast and I wanted to forget <laughs> what I yeah. learned on the podcast so I could read it fresh. So that's a weird thing that I did. It's funny, Bailey, because this book is incredibly popular especially on like you know bookstagram and all that and now you are like a grady hendrix scholar like you come to this review prepared it is true i have read all of his works (laughs) i feel like i know him i feel like i'm a grady head uh so this book follows it takes place in the same um charleston area where that we saw in my best friend's exorcism but that one took place in the 80s and had teen protagonists and this is the 90s and essentially their moms see guys that's the kind of deep research you can expect from bailey who's read all the grady hendrix books you wouldn't get that. Yeah, and also, also before we move on, Hendrickson, like Vixen, but Hendrickson. Oh, oh. Hendrickson. So we follow this group of moms. Um, our main character is Patricia Campbell. Um, she is the mom to two kids who are both a little bit of nightmares. Um, and her husband is a doctor, well, a psychiatrist, and he's just completely focused on work and not on her. And her job is to take care of the home and also her husband's mother, who is um, showing signs of dementia. And so she has to take care of her and on top of her kids, on top of doing all of these things in this southern town where sort of image and propriety is everything. Mm. She joins a book club. She joins other women who are in the town and have a similar 
interest in true crime. They're kind of ashamed to say because this was before like my favorite murder and all that. So they find that they all are feeling overworked in their housework duties. They're not appreciated and they know that they're supposed to be spending their time reading like really intense literature, but they just want to read The Stranger Beside Me. And like, I think mm-hmm. we all can relate to that. They all should be reading mm-hmm. Titus Groans. <laughs> <laughs> they should be reading Titus Groan, but they want to be reading Grady Hendrix. And we all get that. So that's the opening. And then guess what happens? Vampire. Uh, werewolf. <laughs> werewolf. Yes. Stranger comes to town. Handsome stranger. Doesn't really like to go out in the sun. Very charming. Uh, he's very insistent that you invite him into your home. You know, and then the children start disappearing. Oh. So... You know, who's going to fight this this man, this perhaps vampire? I don't know. It's going to be that book club. And that's our premise. I love this plot. It sounds great. Yeah. It is great. Do they have any kind of like interest in the occult kind of on top of their true crime uh, interest? Good question. It's more focused on true crime. And they they talk a lot about Ted Bundy and the idea (laughs) of like this guy that was walking among them and they should have seen the signs, but he was so Mm -hmm. handsome and charming. And like they had this sort of gift of fear, this sense of maybe I shouldn't follow this guy to his VW bug, but Mm -hmm. they're like, no, better not say anything that wouldn't be proper. So it's more of that and less of like a vampire thing. So There's actually sort of a plot point, um, and this leads into one of my main points about the book. Most of the book is Patricia convincing the book club that there is a vampire, and very little of it is actually fighting the vampire. Because I think the book club is more amenable to hearing, you know, we have a drug dealer in our town versus we have a vampire. So, all right, well, let's get into them. Let's get into my elves and orcs, my vampires and Van Helsings, if you will. Oh, nice. One of my favorite Grady Hendrix-isms, what makes me a Grady Hendrix vixen, is that he really does setting and character beautifully well. I can tell that it's the 1990s. I grew up in the 1990s, so I see like sort of my mom at the time in these characters. Bailey, would you say that 90s kids would remember? 90s kids would remember, definitely. If you recognize these nine references, you will enjoy it. You are a 90s kid. It's also specific to Charleston. And it's also, he really, I've said this before, but he writes women really well, which does not always happen, Stephen King, um, in the horror <laughs> genre. So so that's general Grady Hendrix stuff that I love. I think he's very funny. I think he can write really, if not scary, creepy and unsettling scenes. This one has a lot of like insect related horror versus like, you know, slasher horror. So that is is very effective and you'll remember when you think back over his books you can remember at least one or two scenes where it's like ooh and, and I think we are all thinking of the same scene from my best friend's exorcism those are general Grady Hendrix things what I liked specifically about this one my Van Helsing's for this book are that Grady Hendrix really nailed the gender dynamics and that he understood what it is to be a wife and a mother and do all this work, this silent behind the scenes work and nobody appreciates you and they just think, you know, that they're doing the real work in the office and women should, you know, stop talking about this hot guy that just moved in. You know, <laughs> gaslighting's mm-hmm. not real, you're crazy, etc. <laughs> so I really liked that he nailed what it felt like to be this woman. He nailed the husbands writing them off in this like really harsh way. And he nailed the sort of superpower that these women have by being these wives and mothers and house housekeepers, housemakers. For example, I'm going to read one short passage. This is a conversation between two characters when they're trying to get stuff done in a tense moment. Let's see if we can find some hydrogen peroxide for these bloodstains in the carpet. I prefer ammonia. 
says another. Hot water? No. Cold. Interesting. How can I describe this? In the moment, like for example, it becomes very important that they know how to clean up bloodstains. And these women know how to do it and they have different methods and they're excited to talk to each other about the methods and it comes in handy to accomplish their their goal of fighting this vampire, which I thought was very cool. A little taste. Here's another one. This is just Patricia talking to her husband, Carter, who is the worst. If you haven't heard what we have to say, then you have no right to tell us who we can and can't speak to. We're not our mothers. This isn't the 1920s. We're not some silly biddies sitting around sewing all day and gossiping. We're in the Charleston Old Village more than any of you, and something is very wrong here. If you had any respect for us at all, you'd listen. So, like, she's trying to tell this man, listen to me, and he's like, okay, why don't you go back to cleaning the carpet? Oof. Man, husbands who are the worst are like a pretty specific subgenre that's very satisfying to read for some reason. Yeah. So these are all my pros. And then I just have one little orc, which is my one little point that I mentioned before. I think it's a little long. It reads a little slowly to me. And I think it's because we spend so much time deciding... That this man is a vampire and convincing people that it's a vampire and very little time actually slaying the vampires. And I think that's probably an issue with the title um, because, you know, as soon as you open the book that it's going to be about slaying vampires. But, you know, that was my same critique with Salem's Lot was that it took way too long for people to figure out they were vampires. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it's a reference. (laughs) Who knows? There wasn't that many Salem's in it to call it that. (laughs) It's never really a mystery of who is the vampire, you know. I think. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, I really love Grady Hendrix. This is not my favorite Grady Hendrix, but I still Mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. It was a great read. I read it even when I had COVID. So I'm going to give it four stars. Nice. Um, Mm. Out of of all the Grady's that you've read now, and there are so many, what would you say is your top Grady? Um, My top Grady would be My Best Friend's Exorcism, followed by The Final Girls Support Group, and then Horror Store. And then I would say it's this one. And then I would say under that is uh, We Sold Our Souls, just so everyone knows. That means I've read your favorite Grady Hendrix. Yeah. Me too. Definitive Grady Hendrix. Good job. Dylan, I know you read this book too. Do you want to say anything about it? I mean, I kind of actually agree with a lot of your points of it being more vampire hunting kind of thing. I was surprised Billy didn't mention this. They do mention one real huge uh, Pedro horror story of going to a book club without having read the book. Oh boy. And having to present on it. And having to present on it. And when he's talking about trying to read a book that's due and he can't, it's like, oh, no, that's too real. (laughs) Uh, Andrew, do you have any? Well, I know we've covered Grady before, but do you have any information on this book? I do. So, yeah, that's a good point, Bailey. We we did cover Grady Hendrix before and did an in-depth look into his bio. That is episode 59, My Best Friend's Shelter, if anyone wants to check that out. Um, Because for this one, I just went and found an interview of Dear dear Sweet Grady talking about um, this book in particular. This was done with NPR, and it came out on April 26, 2020, and it was with Petra Meyer. This is just part of the preamble, not going to a direct question, but Grady says of this book in particular, Getting some blood on the page is the only way I know how to write, so all my books are really personal. This one's set in the neighborhood where I grew up, around the time I graduated from high school, and it's the first time I've had to run a book past my family before publication because so many of our stories are in it. Fortunately, I fictionalized everything pretty heavily, so no one had too many problems. I'm assuming the vampire stuff is the personal stuff. I was going to say, it's definitely the vampire... Maybe the scene with the suitcase, if you know, you know. We had this really hot family friend who like was really pale. <laughs> Uh, So here's the first question. The way you depict the women at the center of this book is clearly affectionate, but in places I felt like it was edging a little bit into mockery, which Bailey doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like was your reading. Was that your intent? Tell me how you approached building the characters in their world. Hendrix says, 
I feel bad, it seemed, to edge into mockery. I take these ladies very seriously. They're the women I grew up around, and I wanted to write about how I went from knowing them as a kid, when they seemed like a bunch of lightweight nobodies, to how I got to know them as adults, when I learned that they had to deal with all the ugly, difficult stuff so the rest of us wouldn't have to. The choices these women had to make were hard, and they were never offered an easy option. Southern ladies are not cute and cuddly. They are tough, strong women who will mess you up. On the other hand, I grew up in Charleston, and that world can sometimes seem over the top, where the conditions of your yard or whether you served your guests on paper or china plates were the referendums on the state of your soul. It seems silly in retrospect, but at the same time, it felt deadly serious. But, you know, in 30 years, a lot of things that felt like life or death to me now are going to feel like punchlines. Time tends to turn almost everything into comedy. Yeah, I didn't nice. find it. I didn't find it mockery at all. I thought it was like respecting the women, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, that's a that's a tough question for the interviewer to pose to Gray. He's kind of like sideways, seeming to call him out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Petra had a point to make. <laughs> yeah, typical NPR gotcha journalism. <laughs> <laughs> Petra asks, there were points at which it, I felt like the men in this novel, the human men anyhow, were almost as much of a big bad as the actual monster. Am I onto something? Hendrix says, when my parents got divorced in the 80s, my mom was a 50-year-old woman without a college diploma because her family believed sending a woman to college was a waste of time and without a credit score because she'd never had a credit card or a bank account in her name. My dad wasn't a bad man, but that's just the way things were. It's hard to imagine how stacked the deck had been against women for so long. You have dictionaries from the 70s defining housewife as light, worthless woman or girl. You have an entire magazine and self-help industry telling them that they're not keeping their houses clean enough, their bodies beautiful enough, their children healthy enough. I read housewife instructional manuals from 1847 to 2013, and that's consistently been their message for 175 years. It's only in the last few decades that men have been asked to look at their role in all of this, and it's really only in the last decade that, as a dude, benefiting from the situation, even if you aren't perpetuating it, has become, has become widely seen as not good enough. Mm. See, he gets it, you guys. He gets it. Tell me about how you decided to approach race in this story, because we're following this group of white women, but they're relatively insulated from the actual horrors going on. Relatively, anyhow. And then Hendrix answers, It wasn't so much a conscious decision as the fact that I decided to write about what I saw growing up in South Carolina in the 90s. My vampire moves to this town because he sees a time coming where everyone's going to need a credit card and a photo ID, so he's got to put down roots, get a home address, and open a bank account. He assumes that if he preys on the poor and blue-collar African-American people, no one's going to care. What he doesn't see is that the white women where I grew up relied on black women to help them raise their children and clean their homes. They interacted every day and often became friends, even if those friendships were complicated and limited by serious issues of race and class. But they cared about each other's families. They knew about each other's problems. My vampire just skims the headlines and assumes that the children of working class African American parents aren't valued. He doesn't look deeper and realize that in a lot of ways, at our best, moms care about kids no matter whose they are. I'm really glad you mentioned that, Andrew. I'm, that's a really important part of the book, and he does a great job. And he also avoids, you know, typically in books like this, the minority characters are kind of like red shirts, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's not yeah. the case here. They're fully fleshed out characters, particularly um, one woman. So, yeah, good, good facts. I love how he really, he really went with this genre title to like tr just get all the stuff in here where it's like, look, I can tell you that we're going to be doing about race, but if I call it like a sexy title of Southern Book Club's <laughs> Guide to Slaying Vampires, I mean, yeah, you're going to read it then. Awesome. Well, great interview, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. And uh, again, look for, for more details on his actual biography. Check out episode 59. So that is The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Four stars. Nice. Dylan, tell me you've prepared a really violent, vicious game for us. Because you know what? I want to get a fat lip. Fat. Oh. Nope. 
I have prepared. Some I actually haven't prepared a game. I told you guys that you can send me requests anonymously about how you want to run the podcast. And apparently. Yeah. And we still don't have a vending machine. Okay, I am told you, I'm getting on it. And apparently they want us to change to a vampire podcast. So that obviously means that one or more of us are vampires. Obviously. I mean, obviously. obviously. That's, that's how you that's get it. That's the only jump that I could take from that specific fact, I suppose. I don't even know why you bothered to explain that. So this is the podcast producer's guide to hunting vampires. Okay, Ooh, that's pretty okay. good. Okay. Right, I like that. So what we're going to do is you are going to ask the other two people a question. And because we are a book podcast, it has to be book related. You just can't ask, are you a vampire? Andrew, you go first. Okay, so it has to be book related. Yes. Okay, but it, I probably shouldn't ask, are you like a character from Dracula? Because that's probably, that's <laughs> too, okay, okay. So you are reading a cookbook and it's making a lovely Italian tomato sauce. Are there any ingredients uh, that put you off? I would just say that I prefer to just take a canned tomato sauce off the shelf. Um, because you know me, I'm not a big cook. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So Tracks. is skirting the question quite dramatically. Okay, Toby. <laughs> I, I will say there is one ingredient that really, really bugs me. And it's if uh, a cook uses uh, dried basil rather than fresh basil. Mm, have that that's, a good, that's a good point. Good point. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I, that's very helpful. Right. And one of you is far more suspicious than the other. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Toby. Yeah. Guys, I just want to know, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Ooh. Ooh. Oh. I would just say that there's some positive stuff to Revelations. Some positive <laughs> stuff in Revelations? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I okay. certainly know these very well. Um... You know, I like a story with a beginning, so Genesis, but, uh, you know, there some exciting things do happen in Revelations. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the Bible books very well. You well, you know what? You got the bookends. You, you've got to... You, well, you I got, got the beginning and the, the end. And the some end. stuff happens in the middle yeah. as far as I'm concerned, but, I, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, your answers have been logged. I just like horsemen, like four of them. <laughs> okay. And, Bailey, what's your question? My question is, what's your favorite beach read to read on the beach in the summer in the sun. Mm. Mm. Well, you you know, whatever you read during the summer months, you want it to be light and refreshing and not too too hard to read. So when you know when you're hanging out and you're getting your read on, uh, you got to go with you know something in a series, maybe some high fantasy. Really enjoyed reading the Bardugo when I was you know during the summer and I was reading. Okay, okay. You know, and I'll say uh, I love a good beach read. Um, so you know, you can't beat the romance and the excitement of the Twilight series. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So we vote. So enough chit chat. I'm now going to ask each one of you who you vote out. Okay. And you're not and you're not allowed to talk to each other about it. I feel very okay. confident. Yeah, I feel like Andrew and I don't need to talk about who we're going to vote out. Okay. What? I vote out Andrew. <gasps> mhm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that tracks based on you, yeah. <laughs> Toby, who are you voting out? Bailey. Rude. And Andrew, who are you voting out? I give Bailey 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Bailey, were you a vampire? What? I don't know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> we got her. Well, I get to talk in the vampire voice from now on, so that's good. 
Um, good game, Dylan. Now, Dylan, it's Great time game. for you to shine in a very human way, not a vampire way. It's time for you to pick books at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The, choosening. the Sparkly Choosening. You guys are all probably wondering why I locked the doors so we can all figure out who is responsible for Toby's book. Number five. <gasps> The Body in the Library by Agatha Christie. <gasps> oh no, I'm gonna have to do the facts in Agatha Christie. I'm gonna have to figure out where she disappeared. <gasps> <gasps> Dang, Dylan, for once, your bizarre intro actually led me to know what book you were talking about <laughs> before <laughs> you said the title. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't read too many Christies. Like, I've read like two or three. Um, so I'm excited to dig into this one. Awesome. She's great, guys. I don't know if you've heard of her. <laughs> yeah, little little known author. And for Bailey, I mean, I sent Andrew out on his honeymoon to find it, but he still can't. So maybe after you read your book, you can tell us where the beautiful world is with number nine, Beautiful World, Where Are You? by Sally Rooney. Oh, oh Runester coming back a third time. Taking us back to the Ooh. RuneScape. Well, I'm excited for this one. I feel like it's been enough time since this book came out that it's not like overhyped right now. Can just enjoy some Rooney. Beautiful World, nice. Where Are You? So that means in two weeks on the podcast, I'll be reading Beautiful World, Where Are You? by Sally Rooney. And Andrew is reading The Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Payne. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you like what you heard on today's episode, a great way to help us find new listeners is to rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. This is particularly true in Apple Podcasts. So leave a review, give us five stars, and we'll prevent vampires from coming to your town. Another great way to promote the podcast is you get together with your friends. One of them plays bass. You play guitar, maybe, and you like a kind of edgy, fun new sound. And it's also 2001. I'm not sure. Anyway, <laughs> go back in time and create the band Sum 41 and tell everyone about it. Uh, tell everyone about our podcast. Uh, this is a really strange way to say tell your friends about this podcast. So if you stick around this long, you probably like it. Please tell your friends about it. Good one, Toby. I liked it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. 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 books.